0: This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare goes back to ancient Rome for the sequel to Julius Caesar. It's time for the tragedy of Antony and Cleopatra. Nay, but this dotage of
1: our generals overflows the measure.
2: Uh, oh, happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. Give me a kiss.
1: Even this repays me. I'll yet follow the wounded chance of Antony, though my reason sits in the wind against me.
2: Go, fetch my best attires. I am again for Sidness to meet Mark Antony. Come, thou mortal wretch, with thy sharp teeth this knot intrinsicate of life at once untie. Poor venomous fool, be angry and dispatch Oh!
1: Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety.
0: All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute.
2: Roger that. T minus one minute and counting.
0: All is rotten in the state of Rome, though everything's pretty good in Egypt, where Cleopatra is gallivanting with Mark Antony, one of the three leaders of Rome. Their love affair is interrupted when he is summoned back to Rome, where it is suggested that he marry the sister of Octavius, one of the other leaders. Though in love with Cleopatra, Antony agrees. Rome fights against some pirates of the Mediterranean, and a truce is declared, which Octavius and Lepidus, Rome's other leader, breaks. Angry with them, Antony returns to Egypt and has both him and Cleopatra crowned rulers of both Egypt and part of the Roman Republic. Meanwhile, Antony's disagreements with Octavius reach their breaking point, and war breaks out between them. They fight at sea with Cleopatra's help, but when Cleopatra's ships flee the battle, Antony follows, a fact for which he's later ashamed. Antony's loyal lieutenant, Dino Barbus, deserts him for Octavius, and Antony later loses the next battle and blames Cleopatra. To win him back, she sends word she has killed herself, which sends Antony into grief. He kills himself and manages to crawl to her feet before he dies. Egypt is defeated by Octavius, and Cleopatra, rather than become a war trophy, finally does kill herself, this time with a bite of an asp. Endlessly bewildering, Antony and Cleopatra is, much like Cleopatra herself, a thing of infinite variety. It leaps around in genre, as if Shakespeare couldn't quite make up his mind, giving us elements of history and tragedy without one ever really becoming master of the other. Technically, it's a sequel to Julius Caesar, but only in the way that Henry V is technically a sequel to Richard II. In other words, it's a story that exists in the same timeline, but you don't really need one to understand the other. Not long after the end of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony became one of the triumvirates of Rome, along with Octavius Caesar and Lepidus. Off he went to Egypt, where he quickly fell in love with Cleopatra, which isn't hard to understand. Many scholars agree she is the greatest of all Shakespeare's female creations, and you won't hear any arguments from me, although I will add a minor caveat. She's the greatest of all of Shakespeare's tragic female creations. I'm not so sure that if she went up against Rosalind from As You Like It, that the Egyptian queen would still come out on top. After the compression of Macbeth, Shakespeare returns to his usual bag of tricks. This is another epic and sometimes bloated play along the same lines as the other histories, with the plot leaping from Egypt to Rome, with plenty of pauses on the fields between. We have Eno Barbarus, a Falstaffian cynic, and a soothsayer who, like the one in Julius Caesar and Macbeth's witches, makes eerily accurate predictions. And of course, there's the tragic love affair of the two title characters, which is elevated to Romeo and Juliet-style heights. All these ingredients, which we find sitting in such perfect balance in other plays, wrestle for dominance in Antony and Cleopatra. In the end, they work against each other, creating a play whose characters are sublime, but whose story and the theatrical drama isn't so easy to discern. Perhaps the most difficult aspect of Antony and Cleopatra is understanding the politics of the world in which they live. Shakespeare knew his audience would have some knowledge of the story of Antony and Cleopatra, and it's useful to remind ourselves of certain facts, namely that Cleopatra was once the wife of Julius Caesar, who Antony first loyally served and then later avenged. Now we have a divided Rome, with warring factions vying for control, and for those not schooled in their history, the play is not entirely clear on who or what we should root for. Given how the play is presented, I suspect Shakespeare wanted us to root for Antony and Cleopatra, much as we do for Romeo and Juliet. But do either of them really earn our sympathies? At the start of the play, Antony is an adulterous soldier who's neglecting his duties to the military and his responsibilities to Rome. Later, he commits treason, makes himself ruler of Egypt, and abandons his forces in a time of crisis. In the end, he betrays Cleopatra, only to regret it when he thinks she's dead. And his efforts to kill himself leads to the death of Eros, an aide-de-camp whose only crime was not wanting to kill his commander. And what of Cleopatra, who seduces Antony and uses her sex time and time again to keep him on her side. What are we to make of her decision to win him back by faking her own death? Antony and Cleopatra are exquisite creations inasmuch as they are an unflinching look at humanity at its worst. Here we have two people who bring about war and destruction just to obtain their own selfish ends. Like Macbeth, Richard III, and Othello, they are anti-heroes whose ends should be a warning rather than a celebration. Unfortunately, this is not always how their story is portrayed. Even Shakespeare is surprisingly sentimental about their end, as evidenced by Octavius Caesar's instructions at the very end of the play. Take up her bed, and bear her women from the monument.
1: She shall be buried by her Antony, and no grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. High events as these strike those that make them, Our army shall, in solemn show, attend this
0: funeral, and then to Rome. Octavius and Shakespeare are a lot kinder to Antony and Cleopatra than they probably deserve. Perhaps in history they were more sympathetic, but as presented in Shakespeare's sprawling epic, they are as destructive to their world as the Macbeths are to theirs. This is a pretty spectacular irony when one remembers that Antony was the noble hero of Julius Caesar, who saved Rome from the conspirators. If viewed back to back, one can almost see how Antony was destroyed by his lust for Cleopatra and how she was equally destroyed by him. In this perspective, Antony becomes a bit more of a tragic figure. He's the man who loses the battle between his heart and his ideals. But Antony and Cleopatra is almost always presented in isolation, and when it is, it suffers from being a plodding work whose central figures are a pair of selfish lovers. Usually, I applaud any writer who begins the action in Medias Res, remember that's the fancy term from when a story starts in the middle, but in this case, I think Shakespeare overshot the mark. By denying us the opportunity to see Antony and Cleopatra fall in love, we are denied the chance for them to engender our sympathies. Our only view of Antony and Cleopatra's courtship comes from Eno Barbaris, and we'd be good to remember that he's hardly a reliable narrator. In telling the story to Agrippa, he paints Cleopatra as the one who pursued Antony and describes her as a seductress who tempted Antony away from his duties with her trappings of sex and wealth.
1: The barge she sat in, like a burnished throne burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys like smiling cupids, with divers coloured fans, whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool. And what they undid, did. Oh, rare for Antony, her gentlewomen like the Nariades. So many mermaids tended her in the eyes, and made their bends adornings. At the helm a seeming mermaid steered. The silken tackle swell with the touches of those flower soft hands that Yali framed the office. From the barge, a strange, invisible perfume hitched the scents of the adjacent wharves. The city cast her people out upon her, and Antonia, thrown in the marketplace, did sit alone, whistling to the air, which, but for vacancy, had gone to gaze on Cleopatra too, and made a gap in nature. Rare Egyptian. Upon her landing, Antony sent to her, invited her to supper. She replied it should be better he became her guest, which she entreated. Our courteous Antony, whom ne'er the word of no woman heard speak, being barbered ten times o'er, goes to the feast, and for his ordinary pays his heart. For what his eyes eat
0: only. I always imagine Enobarbus telling this whole story in the tone of a eulogy, although this is not always how it's performed. Its veracity can't exactly be trusted, and it's arguable that Enobarbus's love for Antony will not permit him to see the story of Antony's betrayal of Rome in any other light. What this means is that we have no way of knowing what actually happened between Antony and Cleopatra. Who seduced who? Or was it a madcap mutual affair? Recall how in As You Like It, Shakespeare took the time to show us the courtship of Rosalind and Orlando. By the play's end, we are almost desperate for them to get together. The same clever trick could have been pulled here. Had we seen Antony and Cleopatra's courtship, we might be more inclined to pity them as they go about scheming and betraying the rest of the world. All that being said, there's still plenty about Antony and Cleopatra which makes it superior to other plays in the canon. You may not like the decisions Antony makes, but at least he wrestles with himself before making them. Like Macbeth before him, he vacillates between doubt and resolve. Cleopatra, by contrast, takes a page from the book of Lady Macbeth, at least as Lady Macbeth appears in early parts of that Scottish play. She never really doubts the morality of her actions, nor does she pretend that her love for Antony does not have a dual purpose. She wants to maintain control of Egypt, and having Antony's love will let her. The fact that she sincerely loves Antony makes the whole task a lot easier. On this subject, it has to be said that Shakespeare does not fail in portraying Antony and Cleopatra's love as anything but absolutely real. There is nothing but truth in their devotion to each other. They are Romeo and Juliet if those two teenagers of Verona had grown up before their first meeting. Even Eno the cynic who sees the truth in everything, recognizes the sincerity of their love. He works to pry Antony away from Cleopatra because he knows that the general is blinded. He also recognizes that Cleopatra's emotions are not an act. She is cunning past men's thought.
1: Alexia, no. Her passions are made of nothing but the finest part of pure love. We cannot call her winds and water sighs and tears. They are greater storms and tempests than almanacs can report. This cannot be cunning in her. If it be, she makes a shower of rain as well as dew. Would I have never seen her?
0: This is the play's saving grace. We may not like Antony and Cleopatra, but at least we believe that they liked each other. Their love is as destructive as it is sincere. After avoiding the cynics and clowns in Macbeth, Shakespeare is back to form with Antony and Cleopatra thanks to the inclusion of Enobarbus, who might be Shakespeare's last great character who fits the Falstaffian mode. The cynics don't completely disappear from the canon after this, but they do lose both their bite and their position of importance in the narrative. I'm not going to be the first to suggest the presence of a homosexual love between Antony and Enobarbus, although the exact nature of it may be up to performers to decide. In its most innocent form, their relationship is a portrait of a bromance of the first degree. But if you want to get more daring, you might suggest that Dino has a love that is unrequited. And if you want to get even more daring, you'd argue that their friendship masks what is actually a romantic affair. Any of these is valid, depending on how one interprets the text, although my own thoughts tend towards the second option, mostly because this creates the most opportunity for dramatic tension. From the moment Enobarbus appears, it's clear he isn't as besotted with Cleopatra, or with women in general, as Antony.
1: How now, now Enobarbus! What's your pleasure, sir? I must with haste from hence. Why, then we kill all our women. We see how mortal an unkindness is to them. If they suffer our departure, death's the worst.
0: I must be gone.
1: Under a compelling occasion, let women die... It were pity to cast them away for nothing. Cleopatra cutting, but the least noise of this, dies instantly.
0: When he hears that Fulvia, Antony's wife, has died, Eno Barbarus cannot help but almost celebrate.
1: Sir, Fulvia is dead. Fulvia? Dead. Why, sir, give the gods a thankful sacrifice. If there were no more women but Fulvia, then had you indeed a cut and the case to be lamented. This grief is crowned with consolation. Your old smog brings forth a new petticoat, and the tears live in an onion that should water this sorrow.
0: Enobarbus has remained loyal to Antony despite his misgivings about Cleopatra, and Shakespeare does a good job presenting this and showing us the moment when Enobarbus begins to wrestle with his duty and his affections. Later, Antony will humiliate him when they meet with the Triumvirates.
1: Worthily spoken, Proculeus Or if you borrow one another's love for the instant, you may, when you hear no more such words of Pompey, return it again. You shall have time to wrangle in when you have nothing else to do.
0: Thou art a soldier only. Speak no more.
1: The truth should be silent. I almost forgot. you wrong this presence, therefore speak no more. Go to them. You're considered it stone.
0: The separation continues as Antony marries again purely for political reasons, and when war with the triumvirates breaks out, Antony ignores his advice.
1: Your ships are not well manned. Your mariners are muleteers, reapers, people engrossed by swift impress. In Caesar's fleet are those that often have gained Pompey fought. Their ships are ya, yours heavy. No disgrace shall fall you for refusing him at sea, being prepared for land. By sea, by sea. Most worthy sir, you therein throw away the absolute soldiership you have by land distract your army, which doth most consist of war-marked footmen, leave unexecuted your own renowned knowledge, quite forego the way which promises assurance, and give up yourself merely to chance and hazard from firm security. I'll fight at sea.
0: They lose the battle at sea, but Enobarbus remains loyal to Antony, although he is quick to blame Antony for choosing Cleopatra over his duties as a soldier. Just as Falstaff is eventually rejected by Hal, so too is Enobarbus rejected by Antony when Antony decides to continue making war with their former ally. Enobarbus realizes that Antony is lost and will continue making bad decisions, and at last he abandons Antony. All this can be viewed as a soldier simply coming to terms with a commander who has been corrupted, but the character arc is more moving if viewed through the lens of unrequited love. Enobarbus has seen Antony leap from Fulvia to Cleopatra to Octavia and back to Cleopatra. He has also leapt from Rome to Egypt and abandoned his former friends. Enobarbus not only sees that he will never have Antony's heart in a romantic sense, he also understands that Antony will never care about anything but himself. In short, he has spent all this time loving a man who does not deserve it. All this sets up Enobarbus' tragic conclusion when Antony sends him his golden chests after he bans Egypt for Rome. Antony could have just kept the money for himself, but he sends it to his friend out of loyalty. Enobarbus, already guilt-ridden over his actions, now comes to believe that he was wrong to abandon Antony. Antony's deed proves that the general was not beyond redemption, and Enobarbus immediately regrets what he has done. I am alone the villain
1: of the earth, and feel I am so most. O Antony, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better service, when my turpitude thou dost so crown with gold? This blows my heart. I fight against thee. No, I will go seek some ditch wherein to die. The foulest best fits my latter part of life.
0: To be honest, this whole moment is far too quick, and while I get what Shakespeare was driving at here, I've only ever really been moved by Eno Barbas' death when I've seen this play performed, perhaps as another example when actors are needed to fill the space between the lines. Like Falstaff, Enobarbus has an empty death. Falstaff dies and Hal goes on. So too does Antony go on without Enobarbus. It's arguable that Hal never learns of Falstaff's death. It's equally arguable that Antony dies without ever knowing that his friend is also gone. And now on to Cleopatra, that grand dam of Shakespeare's tragic women. Not surprisingly, the litany of largely male scholars and academics have tended to veer towards depicting Cleopatra as a seductress who used her feminine wiles to tempt poor Antony away. This is, of course, the same theory that leads many people to blame Eve for what happened in Eden, forgetting the fact that temptation, like the tango, needs two people for it to be done correctly. Eve offered the apple, and Adam took it, so which of them is really to blame? Cleopatra has been compared to Eve, remember that it's a serpent who brings about her death, which seems to be a way for male academics to relieve Antony of any responsibility for all that he did. This is, of course, pure foolishness, for Antony and Adam both had free will. Each had the chance, one faced with their own particular forbidden fruit, to say, yeah, no, this seems like a bad idea. Cleopatra does use her sex as part of her efforts to wield power, but it would be erroneous to suggest that she spends the play manipulating Antony simply as a means of gaining power over Rome. I have no doubt this may have been on her mind when he first arrived, recall Enobarbus's description of how she appeared on that golden barge, but it's also clear that by the time Shakespeare's play begins, any duplicitness is gone. As I've said before, Shakespeare's version of these famed lovers depicts an affair that is as passionate as it is sincere. Cleopatra ceased to be a mere seductress the moment she began to sincerely care for Antony. When she manipulates Antony, it's done not for the sake of Egypt, but rather for herself. There's a reason, I think, that Shakespeare waited so long to write about Antony and Cleopatra. The story of a mercurial female ruler might have hit too close to home in Queen Elizabeth's England. Cleopatra is Egypt's queen, and the fact that she brings about destruction for those around her, and arguably for Egypt itself, might have felt like a story too daring to tell with an actual queen in the crowd. It's hard to know whether Shakespeare wanted to portray Cleopatra as a good ruler or a bad one. We don't ever see her at the height of her power, and when it comes time for the battle scenes, it's Antony who we see in combat, while Cleopatra is offstage. When we do see Cleopatra holding court, she suffers from wild mood swings and emotional instability. She disappears for large sections of the play, mostly because Antony is Shakespeare's concern. Shakespeare is more concerned with how Cleopatra affects Antony rather than how Antony affects her. For the first two-thirds of the play, all her scenes are either with Antony or involve her sinking information about what Antony has done. This creates a dramatic imbalance when, in the last act, Antony is dead and Cleopatra becomes the focus of the play. It's an awkward shift, but at least it finally allows us to see a different side of our Egyptian queen. The Cleopatra of Act Five is far more interesting than the one we've seen before. Freed of Antony, but now in chains, she must struggle for a way to survive. She begins by falling back on her old tricks when Caesar's envoy pays her a visit.
2: What's thy name? My name is Proculeus. Antony did tell me of you. Bad me trust you, but I do not greatly care to be deceived, that have no use for trusting. If Caesar... Please to give me conquered Egypt for my son, he give me so much of mine own as I will kneel to him with thanks. I hourly learn a doctrine of obedience, and would gladly look him in the face.
0: None of this works, and she is captured, at which point Octavius Caesar arrives and Cleopatra is promptly betrayed by her treasurer when Cleopatra tries to lie about her wealth. The wolves are closing in around her, something of which Cleopatra is all too aware, and when she realizes this, she also realizes that she is destined for a humiliating fate.
2: Now, Iris, what think's thou? Thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I... Mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules and hammers shall uplift us to the view. The gods forbid! Nay, tis most certain, Iris. Saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets and scold rhymers, ballad us out a tune. (gasps) Antony shall be brought drunken forth and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore.
0: There then follows the long and aching suicide scene. While Cleopatra dies with Antony's name on her lips, it would be a mistake to think that she dies simply because of Antony. Here is the great difference between Antony and Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet. Juliet would rather die than be without Romeo, but Cleopatra would rather die than be humiliated. Had she succeeded in saving herself in Egypt, it's likely Cleopatra would have gone on surviving long after Antony had died at her feet. Now all of this is intriguing, but the question remains. Antony and Cleopatra may be an interesting literary work, but is it dramatic enough to hold our interest on stage? The answer largely depends on the production. I've seen versions that are slow and plodding, while others have rocketed along thanks to both the artists involved and a series of clever edits. This is a play full of as much pomp and ceremony as it is drama, and its lack of comedic elements means that it can make for a long slog in the theatre if left in the wrong hands. Its ending continues Shakespeare's march toward nihilism, for when the curtain falls, the lovers have died for nothing, and Egypt has fallen to Rome. Love has only destroyed the heroes of the play. Shakespeare has continued to explore the dangers of what happens when leaders find their political needs crashing against their emotional desires. His answer to the problem, however, isn't too optimistic. But the exploration is intriguing enough to ensure that Antony and Cleopatra will always continue to hold our interest. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. In my experience, uh, Antony and Cleopatra is more popular amongst scholars than theatrical producers, and the same can be said for filmmakers. Now the most famous version is most likely the 1972 film with Charlton Heston, in which Heston spends far too much time in a loincloth. It appears to have been a vanity project for Mr. Heston, who, as you might recall, also played Antony in a version of Julius Caesar both in 1950 and 1970. Heston played Antony near the beginnings of his career on stage. By 1972, he had won an Oscar and was something of a box office draw, but he still couldn't get Orson Welles to direct Antony and Cleopatra and had to do it himself. The film was poorly received, and for good reason. It's slow, it's meandering, and no one reveals any stupendous insights into the characters. Hildegard Neil, a virtual unknown, is Cleopatra, and while she appears to be a good actress, even she can't save what is mostly a train wreck. This leaves two two made-for-television films, one based on a Trevor Nunn stage production in 1974, and the other made by those stalwarts of the BBC in 1981. To be honest, both of these productions suffer from a plodding pace, but if I had to choose, I'd watch the Trevor Nunn version, if only because Eno Barbas is played by a young Patrick Stewart, who is as terrific there as he's ever been. Thankfully, we also have one more recent production by Canada's Stratford Festival. Filmed in 2015, it features a troupe of fine Canadians in an energetic production, which isn't to say that it's any shorter than the others, it's about three hours, but at least this production has a much more lively feel. Jerry and Davies and Yana McIntosh play the respective lovers, and they do a great job portraying the lust that muddles their senses and brings about their ruin. Directed by Gary Griffin, it's your best bet if you want to dip yourself into this complicated and forever challenging play. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, Shakespeare dips into fantasy and fairy tale with Pericles, the Prince of Tyre. If you've enjoyed listening to Shakespeare on Bard, please check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net where you can find all the other episodes of this series And hey, while you're there, why not figure out how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. Published by St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. That's 31 plays down. Seven to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it.